Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 99, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. A high school set a new dress code for parents. First, it was applauded, and then it was called discriminatory. And a poet had her poem featured on a Texas standardized test, but she says she can't answer the test questions about her poem. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, we live in a world obsessed with early achievement, but our guest argues why it's crucial to have patience for the late bloomers. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire, Lissa Pruitt. Lissa, how are you doing? I am tired. I, <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. I was I'm pretty sure I've said great for how many episodes? Yeah, today it's just tired. Today I'm tired, yep. I was listening to some kids talk today, and um, they um, were talking about texting. And they were saying how they don't think that you should have to use punctuation in texting. And I couldn't help. I wanted to chime in. I was just listening. But I feel like we have an opportunity for kids to learn better grammar and punctuation if they practiced it in texting. Am I wishful thinking or do you agree? I mean, I wish they would punctuate. I just was talking to my son about this the other day that like I was... um there was a child that was grounded from his phone. And so I was helping his dad, like, try to decipher what these text messages meant. Because it was all these, like, <laughs> NMV, like... Oh, it was the know, abbreviations? And, yeah. Like, well, apparently the younger understand. kids don't even like to use those. They think that's nerdy. Oh, well, we, yeah. well this kid is 10th grader. But, yeah. I mean, I, I was, like, trying... Like, it was like a guessing game. It really was like a guess that license plate. Like, what does it mean? It was like one of those games. Right. But, yes, I think punctuation i wish they would use punctuation but they say that if you do then that means you're like your parents yeah and there was one you know time that my son told me that he could tell that this person that was texting him wasn't the person because this person never uses punctuation and whoever had their phone was using punctuation yeah and it's just like i guess it's like a calling card for these kids but i think it's Ridiculous, and I can't understand what they're texting. Well, I'm not embarrassed to admit that, like, back in the day when I was younger, like, I never paid, cared about, like, if I was using the right there or your or whatever, you know, you know, the you apostrophe there, there, and there. Yeah, yeah, and all those and everything. I was just, I was just type away, blah, 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 blah. But as I got older and I started communicating with professionals, it's like, it's important to, like, slow down and you don't want to look. Absolutely. You know, ill-informed in your text messages and you're dealing in a professional discussion. Yeah. And, and I wish we would, our kids would practice that yeah. and not, and, and like, that's just what you were saying. Like, they thought it was like, you're a nerd if you do that. And, yeah. And it kind of, it kind of punched me in the heart there a little bit. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I do get a little judgy, I think, when I read a, a message from a parent, an email, you know, where mm-hmm. a parent emails me 
but there's like it's just riddled. There's absolutely no punctuation, right. no capitalization. The, right. the the lone I is just a lowercase somehow, yeah. which is okay. Never, and and then they and so it's like okay, so you so you want to talk to me about this is and this, but but your okay, grammar's awful. This is can we just yeah. start with where the problem's starting? Okay, thanks. Yeah. Like it's just. Ugh. I've got one other thing that's kind of in that same vein um, that I just love. You know how like when you're at Walmart, there's the the twenty items or less. Yes. Um, it's it's, it's supposed to be fewer, right? It's like right. twenty items or fewer. But Publix gets it right. Like their signs say like ten items or fewer or twenty items or fewer. And I've seen people like applaud Publix. I don't like, get it. Because they use, it's not less. It's supposed oh, to be fewer. I thought you were trying to you say know. like people that have 20 items can go, but at Publix, if you have 19, you can go, but no, not no, 20. No, 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 but the word fewer instead of oh, less, I, gotcha. I think is the appropriate. Or fewer, I yeah, see, I see, gotcha. I see. So anyhow, that's, yeah. uh, I, I always thought that was kind of funny. That I it's probably like, don't use that correctly now. Now who's judging? I don't mm. know, no one. All right, let's just jump into the teacher's lounge and we'll get us both off the hook. Okay, we've talked about this before, kind of, about how they're, like, I believe it was a Tennessee school that was implementing a parent dress code to be on campus and yeah. also noise control from your cars and whatever. And, and, I and, and we applauded it, right? Yeah. Like, yeah we're like, this, is, this needs to it happen. It absolutely needs to happen like a month ago. Well, now a school out of Houston, Texas, let's see, let me get the name of this school, the James Madison High School out of Houston, Texas. Mm-hmm. Now they have also jumped on board with this parent dress code, but it is not being well-received okay, by and, the parents. And, and let me update, like the, the story that we talked about a few weeks back, I think that was a state legislator like proposing a law. Right. And I don't know if it ever passed. Probably didn't. Um, but this is, this is a high school, like one school basically saying like, we're doing this. Yes. In Texas. Not, Basically, the not principal, a like just kind of a female principal, yeah. um, turned away a parent that was trying to register her child for the school. Mm. So the female principal says that this young female parent showed up and she was in a t shirt dress that was very short and revealing. And she also had a satin cap on. Okay. So a satin cap is what my generation would kind of call a do-rag or but it's it's a made out of a satin material usually black or purple or red or whatever and it's tied in a little knot at the top of your head but it completely covers your head Mm -hmm. so it's not a hat it's more of like a scarf wrap okay and so um she turned her away saying you know we have a dress code here and then the mom was like oh i'm not a student i'm a parent and the principal was like, yes, we have a dress code here, even for parents. And you're, you know, you're not, eight. So I think she maybe she was in slippers or whatever. And she was like, you know, you need to come back and register your child when you're dressed appropriately. Right. Well, the parent was really offended and said, you know, what what is inappropriate about what I'm wearing? You know, I didn't mm-hmm. want to do my hair today. She's African-American. And she says that this is discriminatory against her race because, she says that when they don't want to fix their hair, they cover their hair with a wrap and that that's very common. And what's wrong with that? And who are you to tell me if my dress is too short? I'm a parent. Yeah. I'm an adult. I can dress the way I choose. But the principal says, nope, we're trying to prepare our students for the real world. And how will they know what's appropriate dress in certain institutions and situations if we don't require it of everyone that enters this institution? 
Hmm. Well, so. <laughs> yeah, I guess my first reaction is I kind of see both sides. I, I totally yes. agree. Like you, you've got to, you know, the, the short dresses and stuff. I feel like that's okay. But you do have to be careful when you start talking about headwear. Right. You know, um, right. And, and I think that could apply to other cultures as well. I mean, in, in um, India, maybe right. you have a certain headwear that, you know, it's. Well, that's what the parents worn. said is she wanted the principal to produce the writings that say what the dress code is to the parents and mm-hmm. she demanded it. Well, they, I think they ended up calling the sheriff to have the lady escorted or oh, the wow. resource officer to have the lady escorted off campus. And then they submitted the dress code the next day. And she, the parent was saying, you know, no, it's not a religious belief, but if I want to cover my hair, what's the difference in a dad coming in in a ball cap? Cause he didn't do his hair that morning. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, puts on a ball cap and walks in. This is what we do when our hair isn't presentable yet or when we don't want to wear our hair out for the day. I do believe that parents have gotten ridiculous with what they will come into the school wearing. I mean, we've had, seriously, house robes with negligees underneath at my school. We've had... Are gym clothes okay? I... Now, at one school that I worked at, we did have to make a comment to parents because so many parents were coming in to volunteer, but they were wearing Lululemon tights and sports bras. I mean, midriff showing, super spandex from head to toe. That's not okay either. So especially at a high school when, you know, the whole reason for a dress code is so that, that young gentlemen can keep their eyes off of young ladies. Is that the reason? Yeah. Okay. It is a distraction. Yeah. And so um, if you have somebody coming in half-dressed with midriff showing, I mean, that's not okay either. So um, anyway, it, it's a problem, I think, around the world, you know? Yeah. But if you're coming to register your, I mean, I do say in the principal's defense, hey, that's a big deal to go register your child for a new school. Yeah. That's called making a first impression, putting your best foot forward if in you know, we should all try to put our best foot forward. And if you feel, if you look like you're dressed in pajamas, you know, your idea of pajamas. I'll push back on that a little then, bit though. Then why, why is that okay? I'll, so, I'll push back on that. Cause when we're talking specific to registration, it's important to one person and it's the child and it's important that they get registered. And some parents, kids don't get to pick their parents. And I just feel like, you know, just register the kid and get him in, enrolled into the system. It's not his fault or her fault. I don't know. Yes. But and I but I do think it's, you know, you the way you're speaking it's like it's a kindergarten child, but this is was a high school child. That's true. And so they're trying to say, no, no no no, everybody everybody in this situation is relatively adults and let's make sure that we're all aware that this is this is what's out there, snowflakes. This is what's yeah. out there in the world. Yeah. You're going to get turned away. If you don't, if you feel like it's your expression to go, you know, apply for jobs or whatever in dress certain ways. And, and it did spark lots of talk, lots of conversations of people that have been asked to, that have been fired from their job because of their, their headdress, you know, the way they fix their hair with dreadlocks and things. And so it kind of, but now, I mean, there was one person that said, well, what about these moms that come dressed in yoga attire with wet hair because they just left spin class. Mm -hmm. And I agree. Sometimes that can be really inappropriate too. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think that the lady should have been turned away. I don't. 
But I do think that there should be dress code on campuses because some people don't realize just how far some people are taking it. I mean, I watched yeah. a gentleman walk in with no shirt on. No so, shirt. And, and I feel like the I dress mean, code like, should... I that's not okay. <laughs> I feel like the dress code should be, you know, no shoes, no shirt, no service or whatever. Sure. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know that we need to get into the... The, to the yoga outfits and stuff, midriff showing stuff like midriff, that. I kind of, yeah, yes, yeah, I get but that. As far but, as what you have on your head, that shouldn't matter. We are moving into a more casual lifestyle across the board. I mean, mm-hmm. I was reading an article the other day about um, Silicon Valley. It's like you know where people used to probably wear shirt and ties are now all wearing um, like North Face and Patagonia vest. And and just as a sidebar, North Face and Patagonia are not happy about it. Um, and that's, a, that's really what the story was about, but it's just like, that's that casual. Why look. are they not happy about well, it? Well, okay. So the, these, that's more these people sil- wearing their stuff. Well, cause they're, they're big companies already and they don't want to become the Silicon Valley dress look. attire. Hey. Yeah. And, and so what they were doing was they were buying these, um, these nice vests and then they were having their company, I don't know, right. Facebook or whoever, in, you know, uh, what do you call it? Embroidered, yeah. uh, embroidered on there. And, um, they have now banned embroidering of company logos on their vest. Wow. I don't know how they're going to plan to enforce that, but they basically are just trying to kill this whole like look in Silicon (laughs) Valley. And also apparently they conflict some, sometimes um, these are very like, you know, nature, you know, eco friendly type companies. And I feel like maybe there's some conflict there. I'd have to go read the article, but they don't, they don't like being associated with some of these uh, larger companies in San Francisco. So, well, I do think you shouldn't get into headwear and, and shoe attire with, with parents. Yeah. But low cut, uh, provocative, midriff showing, Pajamas. loud, loud, um, obscene music playing from your car. Yeah. All yeah. that should be policed yeah. by the schools. Yeah. I think this, that story that you're referring to out of Texas was applauded even right out the gate. And, but then there was that line crossed of maybe, is this discriminatory? And that's when things kind of started to get reevaluated. Mm-hmm. So do we know like where they are now with that? I mean, are they still holding strong as far as well, we know? the principal is an African American female and the lady that was ret- turned away is also an African American female. So of course, you know, they're saying, you know, the principal saying, no, this, this has nothing to do. I wasn't trying to discriminate against your race. We share the same race. Um, but uh, I know there's lots of discussions back and forth. Um, I mean, I believe that the principal's standing her ground on it and saying this is what we expect in these four walls. All right, I've got one. Um, this was interesting. This was a um, a poet. She writes poems, not like in a... In oh my a, gosh, I know this one. Do you know this about the test? Yes. You saw this? Okay. Yes, I read this. So yeah, this poet, this was actually in the Huffington Post where I saw it, but um, she wrote some poems, I think back in the 90s. Um, I guess like the rights to them weren't expensive or whatever, mm-hmm. and the testing company, I think it was Pearson, um, must have bought the rights for the poem, or at least the rights to use the poem in their test. And it was on, um, let's see, a grade eight and a grade seven star test in Texas, mm-hmm. star reading test. And so these students would have to read through the poem and then answer like some questions about the poet's thoughts. Like, why did they put a stanza here? I think that's what it was. Like, why did the author of this poem do this, do that? Do right. right. But but no one apparently asked the poet why they did it. <laughs> and turns out the poet saw her stuff on the standardized test because she got a call from a teacher 
and or an email from a teacher and she realized that she couldn't even answer the questions on the standardized test and she's the one that wrote the poem right and yeah so like this is this is concerning like because this is one case you know right but how often is this happening the poet says a lot of the points that they use um in these standardized testing situations the poets are gone right dead dead, so gone. They, they can't protest so you can't really yeah and she yeah. was like but i do protest i'm still alive and i don't like these questions and i don't i don't like this yeah you know? it says the assessment asks the following questions dividing the poem into two stanzas allows the poet to a compare the speaker's schedule with the train schedule b ask questions to keep the reader guessing about what will happen c contrast the speaker's feelings about weekends and mondays d incorporate reminders for the reader about where the action takes place and she's like the answer uh, or the answer to the test is C, to contrast the speaker's feelings about weekends and Mondays. However, that's not really why she did it. She says, the test prep materials neglected to insert the stanza break. I texted him an image of how the poem appeared in the original publication, so it didn't even look the same. Um, And so that was one part of the problem with the question. But also, she says, I just put the stanza break in there because when I read it aloud, I'm a performance poet, I paused there. So there's not really one of the right. reasons that they said that. Like, right. it's none of the above. Right, but no one ever called to ask her why. So I just wonder, like, is this is this like a unique incident, or is this just happening all over the place on standardized tests? Well, I do think when you're talking about author's intent, author's purpose, um, the you know the intended mood, I do think a lot of times these English teachers are kind of guessing Mm -hmm. and i know that even just with my boys and when they were in literature class some of the questions like they would get you know it wrong and then they would ask their teacher well why is d correct over this why is that one more correct over that one and they all both boys said that it always was really uncomfortable because even the teacher was kind of like well because but it was just so opinionated and just Oh, you know, it was hard to really say why was one one was more right than the other. So, so it um, shouldn't be on a standardized test, exactly. right? Exactly, but like, yet they are, to. and you know, and so it is just kind of you're just kind of guessing, like, well, you know, who knows? It could be A or B, but it's definitely not C or D. But it could be A or B, and who knows? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a shame. Well, are you ready for the uh, bright idea? Yes. We live in a world where we applaud kids that do amazing things at a young age, but our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is not focused on those early achievers. Rich Callgard is the publisher of Forbes magazine, and he has a brand new book titled Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. Rich, welcome to Class Dismissed. I'm thrilled to be on, Nick. Uh, I am so guilty of what we're about to talk about. I see videos. <laughs> uh, yeah, I see videos on Facebook all the time. Young children doing something amazing, and I think you know they're well beyond their age. And I get excited because this child that I'm seeing has has a head start at doing something great. Is there anything wrong with me getting excited about that? Uh, there's nothing wrong with getting excited about that. The problem is in K through 12, in many parts of the country, we put we have this very narrow idea of what a K through 12 education should be that it should be a conveyor belt. At the end of that conveyor belt, it deposits these kids into the best possible college that they can get into. Well, some kids are really going to succeed on that conveyor belt where they're subject to standardized tests. They're subject to homework that you can't believe. They're subject to 
the pressures of getting straight A's and advanced placement courses, et cetera, et cetera. And God bless you if your kids really thrive under that environment. But what why I want to say loudly and assertively is that if they aren't succeeding in that regime, plan B isn't to double down because there's just overwhelming research that says that that conveyor belt to early success is missing more kids than it's hitting. That some kids, many kids, that their talents and their deepest passions and purpose are never going to be revealed along that conveyor belt. And that's what I really wanted to address and spent five years doing the research, writing this book, Late Bloomers. Yeah. And, and in the introduction to Late Bloomers, you really grabbed my attention with this story of, of somebody named Joanne, a, a 53-year-old late bloomer. Um, do you mind sharing that example a little bit? Yeah. Joanne was one of those students who did well, but not great. You would call her high mediocre. Her, her people in uh, high school and in her college don't seem to remember her. But one professor said, she seemed to stare off into space and was dreamy. She listened to a lot of alternative rock music. She got into a bad marriage. She contemplated going to grad school, but didn't. She was a receptionist. She did things like that. And then she went into a spiral of depression after her divorce. She was on public assistance. And at age 35, while taking a train, Joanne, otherwise known as J.K. Rowling, mm. dreamed up Harry Potter. Wow. And that, that'll give you goosebumps. I mean, if you really think about it, here's this person that basically went unrecognized for the first three decades of their life. I know you like to cite, um, there's, I think, a 2015 study um, where it kind of, I guess, researched when we do best in different periods of our life. Is that right? Yeah, this is a great study put out by Harvard, MIT, in conjunction with Massachusetts General Hospital. And the researchers, Lord Germain and Joshua Hartshorn, ask the basic question, at what age do we cognitively peak? Now, just stop there. We assume, I think, in this K-12 through conveyor belt that we have one shot at around age 16 or 17 on the SATs or the ACTs to prove our worth, to prove where we can go to school, what our career track should be. And this science just roundly debunks that idea because the answer to the question, at what age do we cognitively peak, depends on which cognitive abilities you're asking about. So sure enough, the kinds of things that allow you to do really well in, in tests peak in our late teens and early 20s, that would be synaptic processing speed, working memory, and then deeper pattern recognition, a sense of empathy and compassion, vocabulary, leadership skills, mm -hmm. all the neurological capabilities that support that don't even begin to emerge until our 30s, 40s, and 50s. And then what we might call deeper wisdom doesn't even begin to appear until our 50s, 60s, and 70s for most. So this idea that we have to front-end load everything, I think, is creating a false idea of how life really plays out. So what do you think, you said you've been, you've researched this for five years, what do you think the is driving parents to push their kids to, to bloom early? Is it society? Well, I have a theory, I have a theory that if you look at where the predominant rewards in the economy have gone over the last 20 years. They're really in two industries. They're in software, and that includes everything on the internet and social media and so on, and high-end financial services. So I like to say Google and Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. Now, these Googles and Goldman Sachs, who do they look for in college grads? They look for college grads that have gone to the most elite universities, 
the top 10, the Ivies, Stanford, Caltech, MIT, et cetera, they look for these stratospheric standardized test scores. Jeff Bezos scored a first perfect 800 on his math SAT. And, and in the early days of Amazon, used to ask job applicants what they scored on their math SAT. Bill Gates, co-founder of Microsoft, perfect 800 math SAT. Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook, perfect SAT all across the board. The two founders of Google, same thing. And so this has created this idea that the greatest rewards in our economy go to those two, two segments. And there's some truth to that, that they have. But that's because these companies and all the venture capital firms and all the hedge funds are screening for exactly that. And even Google found out that three years into a Google career, the correlation between how well you're doing at Google and the quote unquote elite ranking of your university and what you scored on your standardized tests had a very imperfect correlation to how you were doing and basically after three or four years disappeared into the statistical noise. Do you see a tipping point um, coming up anywhere in the near future where we start saying, you know, these expensive private schools and expensive preschools and expensive universities that we're sending our kids to, um, it's going to change? Do you, do you think anyone's going to look at this differently? Well, let's throw in on top of that uh, a conversation my wife was having with some of her friends in an adult ballet class here in Silicon Valley. And this is talk among not rich people, but but middle class and upper middle class people that they just routinely spend $50,000 over a four-year high school career to get tutoring help, college admissions help, and all that kind of stuff. There's a college admissions counselor in Southern California that one of my Forbes colleagues is aware of who tells parents, basically, your kids shouldn't see daylight for two years. Wow. <laughs> oh, Really? You know, shouldn't see that. That's almost criminal in my mind. And then you meet, reach the most extreme manifestation of this insanity with the recent college admissions bribery scandal. I hope we've reached a tipping point. My my whole goal with writing late bloomers was to lay it all out there and to start a national conversation that this maybe this doesn't work for everybody and maybe it doesn't work for the majority of people and maybe it's causing a lot of financial indebtedness, missed meals kids who don't get enough sleep and are under stress, epidemics of anxiety and depression, tragically even rising rates in suicide, that somebody has to say, look, we, we, we just got to, we, we all need to be in on this conversation that this conveyor belt works for a minority of kids. It doesn't work for the majority. That's funny. You were just talking about anxiety and depression. I, I went to Amazon and I looked at some of the the, the uh, reviews of your book. And I don't know how often you check those, but there's one in there where someone wrote, I've read many pages of the book out loud to my kids. My 15-year-old daughter had tears in her eyes inside when I finished reading the first page to her. I take pictures of pages and send them to friends because I get so inspired. I mean, to hear that, that uh, you know, a 15-year-old is hearing parts of your book about saying, you know, we, we don't need to necessarily um, ignore the, the late bloomers. I mean, how does that make you feel? It brings tears to my eyes, frankly. I gave a reading at a bookstore a couple of weeks ago, and uh, one of the women in the audience said, thank you, thank you for giving us permission to have this discussion. And whatever I can do to contribute to that conversation, I want to do, because there are models around the world that uh, we ought to try in the United States that suggests there are better ways to create 
the greatest number of, of healthy kids along their K through 12 educational route. Finland, for example, by the way, uh, Finland uh, popped up at the top of the list of um, happiest people in the world about a month ago. So this is recent news. Finland doesn't start kids at school until age seven, and they don't believe that exposing kids to reading, writing, and arithmetic uh, uh, is really does much good for the kids and, and possibly does a lot of harm before the ages of seven. I've become a big believer in gap years, whether that gap year is after high school, before starting college, or, or a two-year gap between the sophomore and junior years. I mean, there are many ways to sort of slow down this process, let youthful brains develop as youthful brains were meant to develop, and expose kids to the most opportunities that will reveal their strengths and their passions, not their weaknesses. I was having a conversation with a clinical psychologist in LA, and he, uh, he, he works with families of, um, of troubled high schoolers, mostly boys as it turns out, and a lot of these boys have basically thrown in the towel on their on on school at a quite early age in grade school, middle school, high school. And it turns out the parents think the kids is, is getting into trouble, where in fact the kid actually is interested in something that he's almost too embarrassed to to share with his parents. For an example, would be a kid who loves to tune cars. Mm-hmm. Now, only in an upper middle class neighborhood in Pasadena would be embarrassing to say that you like to work on cars instead of not seeing daylight and spending every last hour to, to get into USC. And so I think that uh, I think that we need a revival of skilled trades in high school. Only one out of 20 public high schools offers the, offers it anymore because of budgetary constraints. Well, we need to we need to find the money to do that. And by the way, just because you go to a skilled trade school, you know, you're going to, you're, a lot of kids are making, or young adults are making $100,000 a year at age 22 right. doing these skilled trade jobs. You don't have to stay there forever. I was told the story about somebody who was a, uh, was a welder and then at age 26 decided to go back to college and get a civil engineering degree. Now, what employer wouldn't want that kind of a person, right? They knew the practicalities of big physical infrastructure projects. Plus, they now have the college education. That's exactly the kind of employee that an employer of that kind would want. So, so you have an audience of educators right now, mostly K through twelve educators. What would be your message to them? I mean, should we not applaud those, you know, exceeding expectations at a young age, or should we just put more focus on those that maybe aren't doing great at a young age? I think we have to have a balanced attack for the ones that are succeeding early. By no means don't, you know, they should be encouraged and applauded if it really maps with, with their true talents and their true aspirations. But let's become uh, a lot more sensitive to the signs of when a kid is rebelling against that. And they can rebel in a million different ways. They can rebel by just sort of mentally dropping out. They can rebel by retreating to the basement and playing computer games. They can rebel by poor kids. They're going to rebel by dropping out of school, perhaps joining gangs. They're going to rebel. And the worst form of rebellion would be some kind of um, uh, clinical anxiety and depression and thoughts of suicide. There was a story 
in the Atlantic Monthly in, in the fall of 2015 called the Silicon Valley Suicides. And it was about uh, six high school suicides in the Palo Alto mm-hmm. area in one school year. And it turned out that most of these kids were really good students. They just weren't at the top of the heap. They were your, they were your really solid B-plus students um, who felt sick about themselves and ashamed because they weren't the A and A-plus students. Well, that was just tip of the iceberg. The part, the, the part that didn't get a lot of attention, but the writer dug out, was by March of that school year, was still a couple of months remaining in the school year, there were more than 40 hospitalizations or treatment for quote-unquote suicide ideation. We shouldn't, I mean, that is as clear a sign as you need, but we shouldn't have to get to that level of distress to see that the kids that aren't thriving in this regime, that doubling down on what, what got them into this hole is misconceived. When did you start to have the epiphany to write late bloomers? I mean, was this something you've always thought about growing up or it's something that hit you later in life? Uh, four things. One, I was a late bloomer myself. I, I recount the book and at age 25. I was so immature, so undeveloped that I was capable of holding a job no greater than security guard, dishwasher, and even temp typist was a reach for me. So I'd always wondered if there was an opportunity to share my own story. But that was back in the day. And back in the day, it was easier to be a late bloomer than now because we didn't have this insane pressure. We didn't have social media where every kid is comparing how they feel on the inside about themselves with the curated versions of other kids' presentations on Facebook and Instagram. Then I read a book uh, uh, called Quiet by Susan Cain that came out in 2012 where she talked about the the, the a, a large minority of people in the country who self-identify as introverts and, and how it's hard for them. And I thought, I wonder if you could say the same thing about late bloomers. And then the experience with our own two children who are both adopted, who here growing up in Silicon Valley as merely good kids, felt that they were second-rate citizens. From from doing your, your research, I do want to address those that have early bloomers or parents of, of, of children that have early bloomers. Do, do you think it's a bad idea if you have somebody who just is good at everything at a young age to push, push, push them? Or or if, if they're that personality type, do you challenge them? I would say if you're fortunate to have a child whose who's, uh, gifts manifest early and reveal themselves early and then combine that with a genuine passion, then continually expose that that kid. Now, listen very carefully about the level of coaching that brings out the best in them. Some are going to respond in a more uh, to a more disciplined regime. Some some will not. So this takes a very sophisticated level uh, level of parenting. So I have nothing against the people who bloom early. I do think there are things that you can do. We have neighbors who have a boy um, in, in, here in Silicon Valley, and they make sure that they're church going people and they could go to the upper middle class church that, that, that the rest of us go to here in an upper, upper middle class neighborhood. And they choose to go to a church with a much broader socioeconomic membership where there were poor people, people of, of, of every race that you find in Silicon Valley, and that's where they want to go. And they go on missions and they want their child to develop an empathy and compassion. And that's one of the downsides, I think, of this early achievement mania is uh, some of those early 
achievers being pushed along by outside pressures have have uh, their their empathy and compassion is not good. And I think you will find that uh, study after study will show that empathy and compassion among millennials and Gen Zs are not what they should be if we're trying to raise healthy people. And it's not the fault of the millennials and Gen Zs. It's this pressure that we put upon them. You know, they don't feel unconditional love. They feel conditional love, and the conditional love is based on the condition of their checking off these boxes. Well, Rich Carl got, uh, it is a, a fascinating topic and one that I think, um, you know, everyone, educators especially, do need to pay attention to. I mean, this is this is something um, that I guess has always been right in front of my face, but I've never really put a whole lot of thought into it. The fact that, you know, everyone's going to develop at a different time. And, and I really appreciate you writing it. I think, you know, I, my hat is off to K through 12 educators. I think they know that. I think that they're under a lot of pressure based particularly if they're in some quote-unquote high-performance city like the San Francisco Bay Area and Silicon Valley where I live. Um, they've got, uh, yeah, it's hard. It, it really is hard for them. I think most genuinely know that all kids are different and kids will bloom at different rates. And, you know, if we step back and say success is not measured by how many kids you got into Harvard, success is measured 20 or 30 years down the road when you see that your students are really well-functioning, healthy, happy, fulfilled contributors to their families and society. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, If somebody wants to keep up with you, where's a good place to follow you? Active on Twitter, I take it, right? Uh, Yeah, well... I don't like social media that much myself. Okay, fair enough. Um, uh, you can go to my, the, the, the website for the book is Late Bloomer, singular, not plural, although the book is Late Bloomers, latebloomer.com. And um, and visit me there or visit me at richcallguard.com and um, drop me a note. I'd love to hear your story. Thanks again so much for your time. Are you ready for our pop quiz? As long as I don't flunk it, Nick. You're going to, no pressure. There's no pressure here, all right? First question, if students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Uh, I would say drama class or even as they get older, stand-up comedy. I like that. That, that is a different answer for us. Thank you. Um, what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Empathy and compassion. What does every child deserve? Every child deserves a chance to find that intersection where they're deepest God-given talents and their deepest passions and sense of purpose meet. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Oh, easily it's it's the pressure that the outside world is putting on them. It's parents who feel that their kids must go to an elite school. It's employers who are unnecessarily screening for only certain kinds of of applicants who've demonstrated early excellence. What's the best gift to give an educator? Your time. If you're a parent, your time. Which teacher changed your life? My sixth grade teacher who taught me a lesson in empathy and compassion, the backwards way, the old fashioned way. We had to read our grades out loud. And I laughed out loud myself when some of the kids got poor scores. And the next thing I felt was a slap on my 
that that soft spot between the neck and the shoulder from a yardstick. Right. She she let me know exactly how unfunny and how cruel it was for me to laugh. That was in sixth grade. And last question, pen or pencil? Pencil, because our, our lives are not written in pen. We have the opportunity to erase and start over at any or amend and edit at any time. Uh, again, the book is Late Bloomers. The author, Rich Carlgaard. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Thank you so much, Nick. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you, so if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button, and we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter to search for us by typing in Class Dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ward. Go and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.